Please stand with me if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Esther 4, 1 through 17. Please read with me the verses in bold. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathich, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathich went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther, Mordecai had said, then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Thanks for being here. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Um, yeah, thankful to be worshiping on this hot summer morning. Well, um, I had the opportunity uh, on a few occasions to visit Tools Playing Museum of 
genocide in Cambodia. I had been in Cambodia with uh, short-term summer mission teams uh, a few times, but uh, most recently I spent the better part of uh, three months in Cambodia in the summer of 2014 for my sabbatical. Tool slang can be translated in Khmer, the language of Cambodia, as the hill of poisonous trees. It is originally the site of a high school converted into a security prison in 1975. And by the time the communist or the Cambodian Communist Party um, uh, came into power, uh, again, and, and now it stands as a, uh, as a museum of genocide. This particular site is one of around 200 similar sites across the, uh, I guess, types of prisons across Cambodia during the time uh, of the late 70s, and one of uh, 20,000 locations of mass graveyards in Cambodia, better known as the killing fields. The most familiar name among the Cambodian Communist Party and the one responsible for the mass genocide of approximately a quarter of the population of Cambodia. As a man, as a, as a man named uh, Pol Pot, uh, perhaps no different than Hitler or other dictators in history who directly or indirectly caused the murder of millions of people by their order. I mean, it's pretty heart-wrenching to walk through it. Uh, again, I had been there uh, on numerous occasions and, and most recently just walking through and, and hearing the, the, the guides who would lead us through these uh, killing fields tell us that every time it rains in Cambodia, the bones come back up to the surface. Because these were shallow graves, uh, these mass graveyards that were dug themselves, those who would die. 1.7, some say nearly 3 million people in Cambodia. What would make someone commit such unspeakable brutality? By the end of chapter 3, a decree has been issued for the mass genocide of Jews living in Persia. If you know a little bit about the history of Israel, we know that Israel had been exiled to Persia. And they were there for 70 years. And after 70 years, the king had issued a decree that anyone who wanted to go back home, who wanted to go back to Jerusalem, may do so. But there were some who stayed, and so by the time we read Esther chapter 3 and chapter 4, we are about 30 years past the decree, and there are some who are remnants of, of the Jews living in, in Persia. We are in a nine-week series in a short book in the Old Testament, if you haven't guessed it already, in the book of Ruth. One of only two books in the Bible named after women. We are calling this sermon series, Unexpected Beauty. If you have not been here over the past three weeks, I'd like to reintroduce you to the characters of the book of Esther and give you a brief summary of what we have covered so far. 
So to reintroduce the characters of Esther, there's King Ahasuerus, who was previously married to Queen Vashti, who stood him up at a drunken party. And she was quickly disposed and quickly disappears and never mentioned again for the rest of the book. There's Haman, who is the second in command to the king. There's Mordecai, who served as an official at the palace gate. He is described as a Jew, a descendant of Kish, a, a descendant of, of, of Benjamin or a, a Benjaminite, which links him to some sort of a descendant of King Saul, the first king of Israel. He was one of many Jews who remained in Persia while other exiled Jews returned to Jerusalem. And then there's Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther, her Persian name, for whom the book is named. She wins, if, she, if we can call it that, the rights to become queen of Persia. And she too, cousin of Mordecai, and a Jew. To give you a brief summary, here's what we've learned so far in the book of Esther. The book of Esther, if you read through the 10 chapters of the book of Esther, you will find no mention of God. His name is mentioned nowhere in the book of Esther. And yet, it's all about God. It's all about Him. It's about a God who is silent but sovereign. His fingerprints are everywhere in the book, and just because he is not mentioned does not mean that he isn't carefully orchestrating everything that is happening in our story. Something else about the book of Esther, it's a satire, as Brad mentioned a couple weeks ago. The book mocks the so-called powers of this world. It pokes fun at the claims of power and worldly empires, and it it cuts them down. It disarms them by, by cutting them down to size. What else do we know about Esther? The book of Esther doesn't shy away from the horrible and unspeakable deeds. The Bible isn't just a book of pleasantries or wise sayings or, or wonderful teachings. The Bible tells it like it is. It confronts the heinousness of sin. It confronts the wretchedness of the human heart. It tells of dysfunctional and gut-wrenching family dynamics and messes. It addresses the dregs and the hurts and the pains of, and the darkness that so often color our life. There isn't a circumstance, there isn't an event that the Bible in some way doesn't address, uh, doesn't address in some way because, as I said before, it tells it like it is. What else about the book of Esther? It doesn't always present its heroes and its heroines in, this, in the most favorable light. Even our heroes have holes or, or flaws in their character. And I'm not sure if this is good news to you, but it is great news to me. Because when we read stories about Esther or Mordecai, what it really does is that it points us to the star-crossed love of God to us who don't really deserve it. If you ever read the Bible that way, as a list of characters with flaws, as men and women who 
fail miserably before God, a perfect and righteous and holy God. It's great news because we can relate to these characters of Scripture and look at God who pours love to undeserved sinners like you and me. Let's keep going. A brief summary. Haman, the second in command to the king, who could have simply eliminated Mordecai as a personal enemy, instead convinces the king to plan an end to all of Mordecai's people throughout the empire. How does one go about planning a state-sponsored genocide, Brad asked? Brad mentioned last week, Haman had, his, had at his disposal a powerful enough leader to do it who was either evil enough or dumb enough to go along with it. And so Haman convinces King Ahasuerus, again, he's clueless, King Ahasuerus, and signs this decree, this edict into place, causing the genocide of, of Jews living in Persia. The destruction of God's people is signed, sealed, and delivered to all the corners in every language of the people. The lot had been cast, the edict had been issued. And if you read a story like this, my friends, it is chilling. It's horrifying just to think about that someone can order the murder of so many people. Almost too hard to believe were it not for Cambodia or Auschwitz or Rwanda or Kosovo or Sudan or you name it. I mean, we read stories like this in Esther 4 or Esther chapter 3 and 4 and, and we're appalled that, that someone could do this. And it seems too Crazy to believe a story like this, but if we turn the pages of our history book, we soon find out that there are crazy people everywhere. And so Mordecai reacts with great emotions when he hears that the personal conflict between himself and Haman has brought the entire Jewish nation into jeopardy. The punishment doesn't fit the offense Life turns bleak overnight. And so in verse 1, Mordecai learned all that had been done. And so Mordecai tore his clothes. He put on ash cloth. And uh, he put on a sackcloth and ashes. And he went into the midst of the city and cried a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the king's uh, entrance of the king's gate, and for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate, uh, clothed in sackcloth. And in every promise, province, whether the king's uh, whenever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Chapter 4 opens like the scene right out of a, a CNN newscast cutting immediately to the, to the action on the ground, and the camera zooms in on Mordecai, who upon hearing the king's decree, he tears his clothes. He puts on rough clothing. He pours uh, uh, ashes over himself. 
And he goes in the middle of the city and he cries this deep mourning. But it's not just him. You can hear the news reporters saying, there are scenes reported all over the province. All over the empire, every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews. My friends, what a picture of painful grief. Put yourself in those shoes. Well, every Jew, I'm sure, heard it, except for, for Esther. She had no clue. She was in her castle, shut off from the sorrow in the streets. She is sheltered in the royal palace, a world of silks and satins, of gold and marble, of feasts and parties. That is until news reached her ears of the mourning of her cousin Mordecai and the mourning of her people. She turns on the news and sees images of of Mordecai weeping at the palace gates, and she's understandably concerned. So she sends a fresh set of clothes to Mordecai to replace the sackcloth that he's wearing, who immediately sends them right back to the palace. She seems oblivious to Haman's plot, so she sends Hathach, one of her servants, to find out exactly what's going on. And so in chapter 4, verses 4, all the way to the end of chapter 4, you see this dialogue happening between Esther and Mordecai, all through a intermediary, Hathach. He's a eunuch, he is a servant of Esther, and he is the go-between, the, the, uh, the text messaging, so to speak, between these two parties. He is the WhatsApp And so he reports concerning Mordecai all that had happened to him, verse 7. He informs Hathach of the exact amount Haman had promised to contribute to the treasury and also sends him with a copy of the decree that Haman has made into an irreversible law. The stakes have been defined, which puts Esther in a precarious situation, which really gives her two options when she hears about this decree. One. She can continue to conceal her identity. As I mentioned before, she is a Jew, but no one knows it. No one in the palace, even the king, doesn't know she is a Jew. And so the first option is to conceal her identity as a Jew. And she could look to preserve herself at all costs. And then do nothing to stop the murder of her people at her husband's decree. This, I think, is the least risky You go into hiding. You don't let people know who you are, where you're from. And perhaps this has the greatest chance of survival. And then there's option number two. Go into the king's chambers unannounced and risk your life to plead for the people of God. Look at verse 11. All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. 
it's risky on two fronts. On the one hand, the very act of going before the king unrequested, unannounced, carries the death penalty unless the king gives permission. Two, she would be identifying herself as one of the people for whom the king has just decreed death. So pick your option. What would you do? When the situation had come to a crisis, Esther would be brought into the defining moments in her life by circumstances that she had no control over. In some ways, Esther is having an identity crisis. She will need to choose to identify herself with God's covenant people or continue to live as an assimilated Persian in the king's court. Not much of a choice. She says neither. In her response to Mordecai, she says neither. She neither says she would or that she wouldn't. She implicitly asks Mordecai to reconsider his request. Maybe there's some other way. And then I love this next section in chapter 4, verse 13 and verse 14. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace that you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Many people quote verse 14. I mean, it's probably the most quotable verse in Esther chapters 1 through 10. You might find this verse on shirts, on hats, on mugs, on social media posts that proudly ring out for such a time as this. Actually, I'm just kidding. I've never seen it on shirts or mugs or, or hats. I have never seen that. Um, I can imagine it, though. And I'm sure you can, too. The next presidential election, I'm sure the candidate should have this as their slogan for such a time as this, 2024. I'm voting for that guy or that gal. What we might not realize about verse 14 is that Esther is being scolded by Mordecai. She's being scolded for her self-interested self-serving, her self-preserving mindset. Esther was being rebuked for living large and embracing royalty over service. Through these telling words, Mordecai was reminding Esther that she had been chosen to set aside her own interests, to let go of her own ambitions, to risk her own life and legacy, no matter what the outcome. She had a kingdom assignment, and that's what Mordecai reminds her of. There's reason why she had been in that position as queen. One of my favorite preachers is a 
preacher in Dallas, Texas by the name of Tony Evans. I used to attend his church for about a year in Oak Cliff, uh, a church called Oak Cliff Bible Church. And he says this. He says, he didn't place you where you are so you can eat figs all day long or post pictures of yourself on social media. He's funny. He continues to miss your kingdom assignment because you have become too caught up in your personal kingdom itself is the greatest tragedy you could ever face. If you would listen again to Mordecai's words, they are stirring. Mordecai told them to tell Esther, don't think to yourself that you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Esther, don't you know? Don't you remember? Have you not realized that you too are a Jew? You're like one of us. You too are under the death penalty. And when the time is up, you too will lose your life just like we will. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Verse 14, it continues, and I love what Mordecai says to to Esther, he says, God's promises to his people is far greater than your willingness to be involved. You see, if it doesn't come from you, it will come from someone else. You know, sometimes we, we underthink God's plans. We underthink God's providence. And we, we underthink God's sovereignty. And we think if, if God doesn't use me, he's not going to do it. Or if God doesn't use that person, he's not going to do it. But the thing with God, his, provid his providence, his sovereignty cannot, I repeat, cannot be thwarted. You nor I, none of us, whether we agree or not, can ever thwart the, the right hand of God. My friends, I tell it as I read it in the scriptures, and I believe it to be true that God does what he wants to do. He does what he wants to do. He doesn't need for us to agree and say yes and then do it. God is almighty. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign and in control of all things. And there is nothing that I cannot do or do that will change God's plan. And I love how Mordecai puts it. Though God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, Mordecai, certainly when you hear his stirring words to Esther, cannot believe that he doesn't have an idea that God is in control of another, of, of all things. Esther, if you keep silent at this time, perhaps relief and deliverance will rise out of another place. What beautiful theology. 
What wonderful theology, though God's name is not mentioned. What beautiful theology. Again, a man who knows that, again, if Esther might not be the one, God certainly can raise up another. God will make the stones cry out. God will make the donkey speak. God will do whatever he can in his power to redeem his people, whom he has promised to redeem. That is our God. And I love what, again, Mordecai says, because he says, again, you and your father's house will perish, but the plans of God cannot and will not ever be thwarted. Amen. Thirdly, perhaps, Mordecai says, Perhaps this is the reason why you have been exalted to such a high position. My friends, for such a time as now. For such a time as this, that God would, wherever you may be and whatever circumstances you may be in, however you find yourself, that that place, that position, that timing, those difficulties, those trials and hardships, and those sufferings. And you may, again, at, from the perspective of where you may be, be looking up at God and saying, God, why? And God, I, I don't understand. God, I cannot fathom why this is happening the way it is. But perhaps God might be saying to us in those moments, in a rebuke of our Lack of faith. Perhaps God has called you to this time and this place and to, the, to these circumstances for such a time as this. You may wonder if God is in control at all. You may look at the circumstances that surround your life and not really make sense of why it's happening. The age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? And we don't understand it all. From our limited perspective, it's hard to, to tell what God is up to. It is. If you've lived life long enough, yeah, you know. You know the struggles and the hardships you face. And it's it's hard to reason that, that God has some hand in your problems or your situations. And again, Mordecai, I think in this, this wisdom that comes from another place, says to Esther, perhaps you are where you are for such a time as this. My friends, this morning... I want to just share three things very quickly. I have two more pages of notes. Hold on. I'm going to breeze through these. But uh, I want to just share three things um, with you. Number one, I think the book of Esther is a story about our identity. Chapter 4 is a story about identity. If you remember early on in the book of Exodus, Mordecai was the one who had told Esther not to tell anyone about her identity. And then when we read chapter 4, 
it comes full circle to this exact thing which she was not to reveal, that is, until now. Until now, Esther had been living as an undercover Jew. I'm sure that underneath, she still regarded herself as a part of the covenant community, but outwardly, she was living a life totally separate from that reality. She's the only one in, Esther, in the book of Esther to have two names, Hadassah and Esther. And the author of the book of Esther seems to present this dilemma as to who she really is. My friends, this morning, if you are in Christ, let me assure you, you are a child of God. From what the scriptures tells us, this is your and my identity. I cannot tell you, and again, I say this because I cannot tell you how easy it is to forget this very important truth. For certainly, circumstances, our own doubts, the troubles we face, the times we fall into sin. Again, dig at the very core of who we are. We often feel pressure to define our identity, and I think we do it in, in two ways. One, we identify, we, we build our identity around our sin. We take our sin and incorporate it into our identity, and it's so subtle, and we often don't even notice we've done it. We say, that's just who we are, or I just have this kind of personality. You ever find yourself doing that? Or sometimes we build our identity around our righteousness, our good works. When we're busy with good works, we can certainly lose sight of the fact that it's Christ's work that's been done and has been, doing, has, has been working in us. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that not only can our works not save us, but that any good work we do after salvation are God's workmanship in our life. So we too... At certain decisions in our life, we take the path of least resistance instead of making the difficult decision to obey and to trust God. And to trust his unpopular word. For Esther, her decision, as difficult as it was, enables her to become the agent through whom the people of God are delivered. She comes to realize who she is. I think the book of Esther, number two, is a story about second chances. It's a story about forgiveness. Perhaps like Esther, we have been brought, up, brought to this moment in our life by circumstances over which we have had no control. Or perhaps we have been brought to this moment by some decision we made, some sin we committed along the way. And perhaps instead of living for God, we have concealed our faith so that no one can identify us as followers of Jesus. Church, the past, your past, my past, doesn't cubbyhole us into every decision we make moving forward. That's great news. The sins of your past don't dictate how we live now or how we'll live in the future. And Esther may have been in compromising situations in the past. She may have been reluctant to identify herself as a child of the covenant. She may have been hesitant to identify as a follower of God because it was risky. But she does. In verse 15 and 16... She responds to Mordecai, I'll go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. It's amazing how Esther moved from fear to faith, from reluctance to resolve, from concern for 
her personal safety for the safety to the safety of her people. It's encouraging to realize that sometimes even when we turn to God reluctantly, even when we turn to God with little faith, and even when we turn to God, and I will say this, even for the wrong reasons, we put ourselves in a position to receive the full mercy of God. Amen? The Lord's hand may graciously lead and guide his people who are living like pagans in the court of the king. But those defining moments will come around when each must decide whether, we'll, whether or not we'll choose to identify with God's people through obedience to the word of God. Lastly, the book of Esther is about a mediator. The book of Esther is about a mediator. For certainly, sinful people cannot just casually amble into the king's presence unannounced and uninvited. His edict has gone forth against us, declaring us worthy of death because of our sin. And so the question, who will bring relief and redemption and deliverance for us? Who will stand in the gap before the king? And the answer, my friends, every week, the story never gets old. The gospel never grows stale. The gospel story is that Jesus is our mediator. He stands before the king, and he bridges the divide between us and a righteous king. And my friends, let me tell you, as I read through the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus is no God. He pales in comparison to a righteous and holy God that we, that we have. And the mediator, Jesus Christ, stands in our, on our behalf as the perfect righteousness. And he presents us before the king. plea with the king, the plea with God for our pardon, yours and mine. And our mediator, Jesus, he hung on a cross. And as he hung on a cross, he took the sins of the whole world upon his shoulders so that we might have life and redemption and deliverance. <laughs> 